Barclay talks to Claire Marks about her work as a surgeon and about her recent diagnosis with pancreatic cancer. Claire starts by talking about the importance of showing kindness and the kindness that she has been shown after receiving her diagnosis. My guest today, Dame Claire Marks, was the first woman to become President of the Royal College of Surgeons of England in 2014, and the first woman to become the Chair of the General Medical Council five years later. When she started practicing as an orthopaedic surgeon in 1993, there were very few women surgeons, and shockingly, that's still the case. Men outnumber women eight to one as surgical consultants. So Claire Marks has overcome significant prejudice to reach the very top of her field. She's received a CBE and a DBE for services to medicine. But last summer, she announced her resignation from the General Medical Council after she was diagnosed with incurable pancreatic cancer. She's 68. In a public letter, she said, Since receiving this news, I've been reminded once again of the importance and power of kindness in everything we do as doctors. That's a a very moving letter, Claire, and I think it must have taken some courage to write so eloquently about your new situation. Michael, thank you for asking me to have this conversation with you. Uh, Hearing those words again actually, once again, makes me feel quite emotional because I realise over my lifetime I've had this extraordinary career during which I've been able to show kindness to people, both the patients and the people I've worked with. And when I had this diagnosis, and it is a pretty cataclysmic diagnosis... I was so relieved to have that kindness from the people who saw me. So I wanted to express that to my fellow colleagues. I also wanted to let them know I hadn't been sacked. So... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yes, the gross insult was of a different kind. How has life been for you since all of this came out? Well, I had an extraordinary response to that letter, both from patients and clinicians who wrote to me and expressed their sympathy and sadness, but also a large number of people who were kind enough to remind me of my interface with them over the years. So it was a very affirming time when I needed a lot of support. Now, uh, music is the lifeblood of uh, our programme today, and I wonder if it has helped to sustain you over these difficult months of cancer treatment. The early stage of uh, chemotherapy is so uh, debilitating. I found that I would put something on and then within 20 seconds I'd be asleep, so that very often I'd wake up and realise I'd sort of missed almost the entirety of what I've been listening to. But uh, it's now when I'm feeling more energetic that I'm able to once again really start to think about enjoying various musical genres. And, of course, I'm terribly lucky because I live in Suffolk and so there's a lot of music around to be had in the local area. Well, you've brought a list which includes Verdi, Tchaikovsky, Brahms, Beethoven and Mozart, but, as you've just prompted, it is Britain and the four C interludes to Peter Grimes that we're going to begin. Um, 
Do you have a sort of geographic closeness to this music? Literally, I live 15 miles from Albra, 10 miles from Snape, and it's a constant joy to be able to walk on Albra Beach. And during one of the breaks in my chemotherapy, we were lent a beach hut to go and stay in. And waking up with the beach outside and the sun rising over the North Sea is one of my sort of really good memories of one of these breaks. And this music really brings it home to me. The first of the four sea interludes, Dawn, from Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes, Andrew Davis conducting the BBC Symphony Orchestra. I mentioned earlier, Claire Marks, that as a surgeon you've had to overcome incredible prejudice in the medical profession, and I wonder what was the background that gave you that determination, that confidence. Your father came to England as a refugee from Nazi Germany, didn't he? He did. He fled Germany in '33 because he was able to leave with his parents. My grandmother was Swiss, but my grandfather, a public prosecutor, was one of the early people the Nazis came for. Unfortunately, they were tipped off and they managed to get out. But they then spent years fleeing through Europe until eventually my grandfather realised there was really no future in Europe at that stage. And my father was dispatched to England and my grandparents fled out eventually to reach America. So his was a very disjointed childhood, which gave him a huge amount of resilience. And he has always been one of these people whose motto has been to look forward. And that was something instilled in me as a child. You only look back to learn. You look forward for the future. And that's certainly a good lesson for me at the moment. My mother, a wonderful English teacher uh, and a real Cumbrian stalwart, uh, was a very levelling and grounded personality. And she just assumed that we could do whatever we want. She always wanted us to be the best we could be. And she helped you at some point, didn't she, uh, get going in the profession, even though she had some reservations about uh, the blood and guts of it all? She was extraordinary. She knew that there was a surgeon who lived round the corner from us in Coventry. And so when I was looking for some work experience, which because I had no medical knowledge or no, no contacts, 
she walked around the corner and sort of knocked on this chap's door and asked him if it would be possible for me to meet him and whether he thought that he might be interested in offering me some work experience. And so that's what's happened. And it just shows that if you really want to do something, you actually have to take the opportunities that are presented. And the rest is history because he was actually one of the really influential people in getting me into surgery. But it was my mother who opened that door. The next music comes from this period in your life, doesn't it? Indeed. I... I, Often people say to you, what was the first record you bought? And in those days, with my pocket money, I went out and bought a lovely shining copy of the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto uh, and probably played it far too loud in the house and probably too many times for my parents to be appreciative of it. But I loved it. I loved the power. Well, you can't not play this opening as loud as possible. Kirill Gerstein was the soloist in that majestic opening of the Piano Concerto No. 1 in B-flat by Tchaikovsky. Semyon Bishkov conducting the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra. Kenneth Stephen has written a series of essays about islands in the Hebrides. Today he talks about Staffa. You can hear the full programme on BBC Sounds. The island of Mull is one of the largest of the landfalls that make up the Inner Hebrides, off the Scottish west coast. On the map, if you squint your eyes and perhaps have one too good many malts, the island can appear for all the world to resemble a kind of leprechaun, facing west, one arm of land reaching out above, and one long leg of land stretched out beneath. Within that arm and leg are clustered a whole assortment of smaller islands, some of them with strange names, like Ulva and Gometra. Here too is Inchkenneth, at one time the hideaway of the Mitford family, and just beyond the toe of the outstretched leg is the Isle of Iona, and at the very heart of this cluster of landfalls lies Staffa, some six miles north of Iona. I have the privilege of knowing the man who for long years was skipper of the Iolaer, the boat that took tourists out to the island of Staffa season after season. Davy Kirkpatrick knows every rock and every story that has a connection to Staffa. He himself is a native of Iona. And the making of that journey from Iona to Staffa is something he has inherited. At one time, earlier last century, his grandfather used to row tourists from one island to the other. It's quite a thought.
Six sea miles lie between Iona and Staffa, and sea miles that can be rough enough. Yet Davy maintains such tasks were common enough back then. Staffa lies almost exactly above Iona. When you stand at the north end of the holy island on a clear day, you'll get a fine view of the strange islet that lies in this cluster of other oddly shaped landfalls off the west coast of Mull. You can even catch a glimpse of what has made it so famous. Staffa is the result of one of the volcanic eruptions that formed all of this jigsaw puzzle of jagged-shaped escarpments however long ago. Only once did I see a geological map of the Isle of Mull and its satellite islands, and suddenly that past of fire and brimstone was brought vividly to life. Once upon a time there was a peak on Mull that reached 10,000 feet into the sky. At some point, the summit blew its top and spewed out a great trail of lava that flowed into the weird array of platforms and dragons' tails that created the stone fingers and toes of the mull we know today. Staffa is another part of that story of fire. When you see it from the water, it looks something like a church organ that was thrown overboard by an irascible giant. It lies on its side in the sea, and along its edges are dark hexagonal columns of basalt. And here and there you see cavities, like gaping holes in a rather bad set of teeth. They are caves, and there's one that's become more famous by far than all the rest. It was Sir Joseph Banks, the botanist, who gave it the name Fingal's Cave, after his visit in 1772. This was a time when Scotland and the Highlands in particular were being rediscovered and reinvented. The scourge of the Jacobites had been dealt with once and for all. 1746 had seen the Battle of Culloden and the end of the rule of the Highland clans. It was akin to water pouring into a newly opened channel. The Scottish Highlands were brought into a united kingdom, opened up with roads and canals and bridges. And once they were in place, the first tourists started making their eager way here. Instead of despising the clansmen, who had been feared and loathed in equal measure, they suddenly saw instead the glory of the noble savage, and marvelled at the wild beauty of the glens the clans had occupied and the extraordinary stories the bards had woven. One of those most responsible for creating this sea change was James Macpherson. He it was who scoured the Hebridean islands in search and fragments of the story of the legendary Ossian. What he pieced together, and almost certainly embellished, was found and devoured by readers near and far. With that in mind, it could hardly be more appropriate that Joseph Banks bestowed the name of Fingal on the cave, for the giant Fingal was one of the heroes of Macpherson's cycle of poems. This was a time of giants and the imagination. Here's how Joseph Banks described the cave to which he gave the name it kept forever. Compared to this, what are the cathedrals and palaces built by men? Mere models of playthings, imitations as his works will always be when compared to those of nature.
It was only a single year later that Boswell and Johnson came to Staffa. Boswell's famous account of their travels among the Hebridean Islands is a wonderful record of the trials and tribulations of their time. It was still early days. The highlands were hardly ready for hordes of eager tourists, and all too often the two travellers grumbled bitterly about bad beds in damp castles. But their stories compose a priceless record just the same, and more than likely a wholly honest one. This is the detailed description they offer of their visit to Fingal's Cave that took place on Tuesday the 19th of October in 1773. The height of this cave I cannot tell with any tolerable exactness, but it seemed to be very lofty and to be a pretty regular arch. We penetrated by candlelight a great way, by our measurement no less than 485 feet Tradition says that a piper and twelve men once advanced into this cave, nobody can tell how far, and never returned. At the distance to which we proceeded, the air was quite pure, for the candle burned freely, without the least appearance of the flame growing globular. But as we had only one, we thought it dangerous to venture further, lest, should it have been extinguished, we should have had no means of ascertaining whether we could remain without danger. Dr. Johnson said this was the greatest natural curiosity he had ever seen. We saw the island of Staffa at no very great distance, but could not land upon it. The surge was so high on its rocky coast. This description gives a vivid impression of what it's like to go deep into Fingal's cave, whether by boat or on foot. The tall hexagonal pillars of basalt are what rise up to form its great open mouth. A basalt pavement forms the walkway that leads in to one side. The account gives some sense, too, of how difficult it is to get ashore on Staffa. There's no easy landing place to this day, and almost all the island is edged with cliffs. Once you reach the top, it becomes a benign enough grassy ledge, broken by gullies and little glens from which the high views are breathtaking. But getting ashore is never easy, especially when the seas around Staffa are wild with bouncing. The most celebrated visit to Staffa took place in 1829. Felix Mendelssohn was completing his grand tour. He had been inspired by the Ossian poems and by the work of Burns and Sir Walter Scott. Scott had written of Staffa and of Fingal's Cave in his work, The Lord of the Isles. Felix Mendelssohn wasn't travelling alone. He was in the company of a friend by the name of Klingemann, and on the 8th of August, 1829, fifty-something years almost to the day after that first visit by Joseph Banks, the two went to visit the islands of Iona and Staffa. It's not known if they actually landed on the latter. It may well be that they only bobbed about on the water beyond and below the cave, taking in its grandeur, as Boswell and Johnson had done before them. Mendelssohn wrote a card to his sister, and together with these words included the famous phrase of music that was to be immortalised thereafter. Da, 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 da. 
Mendelssohn was certainly affected in no small measure by his time among the islands in general. But one has to wonder if it was in actual fact Staffa or Fingal's cave that so inspired him, for the poor man suffered the most terrible seasickness that day. I can only empathise. I think the most wretched afternoon I have spent on the heaving sea was when I returned from the island of Staffa in Davy Kirkpatrick's boat. Ian Ramsden is a retired minister who lives near Glasgow. Ian visited Pitlochy Church of Scotland and he ended the service with an uplifting short talk about trusting God. There was a man, his name was Jack, I don't know if that makes any difference, he was walking along a steep cliff when he accidentally got too close to the edge and slipped over. On the way down he grabbed a, a branch which temporarily stopped his fall. He looked down to saw to his horror that the cliff fell straight down for many, many f- hundreds of feet. He couldn't hang on to the branch forever. He could see the ground beginning, the earth beginning to loosen. And there's no way for him to climb up the steep wall of the cliff. So Jack began yelling for help, hoping that some passerby would maybe lower a rope or something. Help, help, is there anyone there? He shouted. He shouted for what seemed like hours. but no one heard him and he was just about to give up when he heard a voice Jack, Jack the voice says can you hear me, yes I can hear you I'm down here, he looked around, could see nobody are you alright yes but who are you and where are you the voice said I am the Lord Jack I am everywhere the Lord do you mean mean God that's me God please help me I promise if you Get me down from here, I'll stop sinning, I'll be really a good person, I'll serve you for the rest of my life, I promise. God says, easy on the promises, Jack. Let's just get you down from here. Then we can talk. Now, the first thing I want you to do, and you have to listen carefully, is let go of the branch. And trust me to let go. There was a long silence. And finally, Jack looked up and shouted, help, help, is there anyone else out there? I wonder if you've ever felt like Jack. We say that we want to know the will of God. But when we find out what it is, what he calls us to do, we can't handle it. It's too scary, too difficult, too much like hard work. I could never do that, we think. And so we decide to look elsewhere for help. Jesus offered his life for you. He offers us his hand to lift us up. But do we grasp it with both hands? A good part of discipleship is simply trusting in God. Trusting that he knows best. He knows what's best for us. He will always be there for us. He's always watching over us.